Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Tonight we're looking at verses 1 through 3. Again, let's listen to the Lord's word again, and we'll pray and ask the Lord's blessing. This is the Lord's word. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord in fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. This is the Lord's word. Let's ask again the Lord's blessing. Again, our Father, we thank you for this evening, and I thank you for your word. We thank you for these hymns of praise how they, Lord, direct our minds and our eyes to you. We thank you for your word as we read it and as we are reminded, Father, of, of how in this world um, earthly kings do fail. But we rejoice in a king who didn't fail, but who succeeded in his, his call, um, your call upon his life, to lay down his life as a sacrifice. We thank you for raising him from the dead, and for this reason we've gathered this evening to sing your praises, um, to read your word, but to hear from you now in your word. We pray that your blessing be upon this time, upon this word going forward. We do pray, Lord, that you would strengthen, encourage, and direct your people now as our work is yet to be done uh, in this world. We thank you for this and pray now that you would be pleased and bless us uh, for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, remember, the book of Acts is a historic account of the church, of the church and its birth, as it were, its growth and also its advance throughout the earth. Uh, one theologian referred to the book of Acts as the account of the Spirit's work. In fact, if you turn back with me to first uh, chapter 1, rather, of here in Acts, and let me read for us again verses 6 through 8, this is what we read. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, this is the Lord, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Should we be looking now? Should we have a schematic of, to know when the Lord's returning? That's, that's not to be your concern. Your concern is to be my witness, and you will be my witnesses when my spirit is poured out upon you. You will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. We are part of this church. Believing the same gospel, the good news that Christ has come to save us from our sins. We are part of the same mystical body, indwelt by the same spirit, serving the same triune God, having the same mandates to go to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded us to do. And we have the same hope that one day we will enter the real promised land and we will rest from our labors. But we must be clear that in light of the Lord's commands, we as individuals and as a church do not exist for ourselves. Sometimes, 
again, the mindset becomes, well, I've found a church, now I can just cloister. And everything in the scriptures wars against this very mindset. I remember years ago, Becky Pippert wrote a book called Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World. And it was really quite a, a, a catchy little title. And her point is well made, right? You don't leave salt in the salt shaker. You pour salt out. It brings influence on everything. So we must be clear, we don't exist for ourselves. We have not been delivered from our sin, brought into the word, or rather into the body of Christ, and granted peace and hope so that we may ignore those around us in the world and in the church. Luke would say, or the Lord, quoting the Lord, from everyone who has been given much, much will be required, and to whom they have entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. As we come now to chapter 13, we are introduced to something new in the book of Acts. Up to this point, Jerusalem has been the center of the church. And now our focus uh, is placed upon Antioch, where they are first called Christians, which will be at the center stage at this point. It is from Antioch now that the first missionary journey begins. Now, understand that as we, we approach this, and I mentioned that, that the book of Acts is, is the record of the working of the Spirit of God. Um, chapter 13 is not, and these verses in particular, are not a celebration of man and his entre- entrepreneurial spirit in advancing the church. Rather, the focus here is uh, upon the Spirit of God, how he has given gifts to men, how he uses these gifts, and how he sets these men apart to be sent out by the church to advance the kingdom of God to the remotest parts of the earth. Sometimes we think that the work of the church can go forward by just sheer human ingenuity. And I think it might be a serious flaw. And and I'm looking at this under great conviction that in the church that that we have many, many smart people. We have many ingenious people, in fact, but we err when we, we don't stop and wait upon the Lord, when we don't first seek his face and seek his counsel for what he would have us do and, and, and take his leading. And we see this in these first three verses. It seems a rather ordinary thing. And, and we, are prone, we are prone so often to look for the extraordinary, the fantastic, or the exciting, right? That's how we're going to, that's how we're going to grow the church with these things. But here, uh, Luke describes something quite ordinary. And we must never underestimate that the Lord, what the Lord does through ordinary things. Right? You know how bringing your children to church, you just bring them to church and they come kicking and screaming. They, ah, oh, I don't want to go. I don't like the teacher. I don't like the snacks. The sermons are too long. Bah, bah, bah. And what you do is, through these ordinary things, you begin shaping their world and how they see things and and you expose them to the things of the lord people uh, people war against these things oh they need something more exciting they need a program don't you understand you need to give them something that will that will that will hold on to them so that i'm convinced that the reason we see so many people so many college students abandoning the things of the lord is because we did the very thing we shouldn't have done we entertained them and we didn't teach them the ordinary things of God in a day after day, pointing their eyes as, as the Lord instructs Moses, as you're going along the way, as you rise up, as you sit down, you talk to them 
about our God and our Savior. Ordinary things. We always underestimate the ordinary things. We shouldn't underestimate these ordinary things. And what we see in verses 1 through 3 appear to be rather ordinary, if you ask me. Now listen to this. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. So far, it doesn't sound so exciting. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a, like a gangbuster um, plan, does it? I want you to notice first what we see here. Um, we see that the Lord gives gifts to his men. He gives gifts to his men. We read first that there is a church in Antioch. If we turn back to Acts 11, verses 19 through 21, we read this. So so then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. you, You see that? What were they doing? What was so exciting and programmatic? They are preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Such an ordinary thing. Something we take for granted. But they simply spoke to them, preached the Lord Jesus to them. So we see this ordinary thing, and we're told again that a large number believed and turned to the Lord. Remember that the news of this spread. Uh, The church at Jerusalem is doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're blessing now the work of the gospel going forward, and they send their best to go and nurture that work in Antioch, that work of the Spirit, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Barnabas, we are told, encouraged them. He cared for them, uh, exhorting them in the Lord, and, and he goes and he gets a hold of Saul. The work is too great for one man. He goes and grabs Saul, who he has formerly gotten to know. Here, this Pharisee of Pharisees, this man who has studied under Gamaliel, and the Lord has mightily gotten a hold of Saul, and he goes, Saul, I need you. Now, remember remember our rapport with one another. You've got to come and you've got to help me. There's too many people. And I just think it's a fascinating thing that Barnabas is not trying to grab glory for himself. He's not thinking about himself. He's saying, we've got to think about the church here. They need to be grounded. And so for an entire year, both Barnabas and Saul are instructing and teaching the congregation, the Christians in Antioch, and he's grounding them in the thing. They are grounding them in the things of the Lord. And, and that's just what we're told in verse 26 of that same chapter. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. These believers in Antioch are a church. They have not replaced the church in Jerusalem, but they are part of Christ's body, the universal, that is, Catholic church. Just as we read this morning that those are who are faith, they, they, they are indwelt by the Lord Jesus. They are indwelt by his spirit. They are brought into the mystical body. So even though there are two different locations, there's not two churches. There's one church because they are part of the same body. Notice, secondly, that this church has been given gifts. Specifically, prophets and teachers are mentioned. 
But to each one of us, we're told in Ephesians 4, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Here, the Lord is given gifts, and we're told what these gifts are. And there are other passages here, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, 1 Peter 4, all mention these gifts and how they're supposed to be used in the body of Christ. Luke, however, highlights two gifts in particular in this, uh, in this church. They are not the only gifts, but as we will see, these are essential gifts for starting churches. They're essential for starting churches, and they were the gifts of prophet and teacher. Notice these are plural, meaning there were multiple people with the gifts of prophecy and teaching. Um, ask yourself this, how many, how many prophets and teachers does one church need? Now, then, now some, uh, to be fair, in Antioch, they're probably broken up among different localities in Antioch, and so you would have multiple people with gifts of prophecy and gifts of teaching. And so uh, what is a prophet? And I want to handle this very carefully because in our day there's been um, such an abuse with this idea of what a prophet is. Uh, in, in fact, we have people who claim to be prophets and they claim to hear a word of the Lord and then they speak a message that is quite contrary to the word of the Lord, which a prophet will never do. A true prophet of God will not speak contrary to the word of the Lord. And so we have these kinds of things going on, and yet these false prophets um, are not accountable to anyone. They don't stand in the presence of the Lord, as, as Jeremiah pointed out in chapter 23, nor do they heed his word. They make up stuff and sell it to the naive and unsuspecting. We see this among the prosperity preachers, the word of faith movement, uh, some of these later movements like Bethel and, and other movements um, going on. Those are not what we are looking at here. In the Old Testament, recall the, the, the phrase that most uh, peppers dominates a message of a prophet. These words, thus saith the Lord. They come and they say, this is the Lord's word. I am speaking the Lord's word. He is a mouthpiece of the Lord. He spoke forth the Lord's word. And at times also he would foretell what God said would happen. What is this gift of prophecy? Thayer's lexicon says this, Universally, it is a man filled with the Spirit of God, who by God's authority and command, in words of weight, he pleads the cause of God and urges the salvation of men. He goes on, or they go on, He was an individual who discerned and did what was best for the Christian cause. And so you have these individuals who speak with weight, with gravity, and they exhort telling them this is what the Lord says, and they urge people to turn from their sins and to be saved. They point. They point again, representing the Lord and pointing people back to the Lord. A second class of, of um, not a second class, a second gift mentioned or of teachers, and it's just what you would think. In the New Testament, it is one who teaches concerning the things of God and the duties of man. They expound the scripture, cherish the tradition about Jesus, and explain the fundamentals of the catechism. There is much discussion concerning uh, both of these gifts. 
What we know is this, that those men were given these gifts, and these gifts were given to the church and were necessary for the establishing and building of the church. Again, picture it this way. One urges and brings words of weight, and another comes grounding the child of God in the truth of God's word. You could see this with Barnabas and with Paul. I can imagine, and, and we don't know this for certain, but I can imagine Barnabas being a prophetic type of man who comes in and he exhorts, we've got to do this, and then people are being converted, and he goes, I need help. <laughs> this is a bigger, this is a bigger uh, uh, porcupine than I thought it was going to be, and I need help with teaching. And so who does he go to for his gifts of teaching is this man, Paul, who's an incredible teacher. Um, I'm not saying that, that that's the way it shapes down. We don't know this from Scripture necessarily. Um, but both Paul and Barnabas are referred to as teaching. Um, again, both are gifted in this. Luke continues without making distinctions by telling us who these men were that uh, were set as, or were identified. Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manain, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Again, Barnabas is the son of encouragement. He may be named first simply because he was sent to Antioch from Jerusalem by the church there to care for them. So we, we see him at the front of the list. Next, we have Simeon and Lucius. Simeon, who was called Niger, Simeon was a, a common name in that day. This Simeon is identified by his skin color. He's, his, his, his Simeon, who was called Niger, and Niger is Latin for black. He's a black man. And so he's identified as such. And again, as we were saying this morning, is that a bad thing? He called him a black man. It's not a bad thing. We're, we're, we're obsessed and we're crazy in our culture. We obsess over these ridiculous things. And it shouldn't be. Um, they are precious in the sight of God, just like anyone else is. But, but what's important is we understand it's not these external distinctions, but it's the work of God in the lives of these men that, that is precious to the life of the church. And what they are externally is just what they are externally. And it's a very common sense. We, we get way off the rails with this kind of stuff. We need to relax with these things and stop, stop letting people tie us in knots over this. It's ridiculous. We're getting to the point. I, it's so ridiculous that there was a... There was a a boy and a girl who were kidnapped in Miami after school. Some They were walking home from school. And the news refused to say that they were black children. They did not describe them in the least. And I thought that was the poorest example of news reporting. If you're trying to recover children, you don't even bother to say what they look like. How are we going to recover them if we don't know what they look like? And, and they treat it as though it's a slight. And it goes, we've got to stop this. Friends, we're losing our marbles over this kind of stuff. We speak charitably. We speak factually. We speak truthfully. That's what the Lord calls us to. He is a black man. He's identified by his skin color. Because Luke lists him with Lucius of Cyrene, the possibility is not remote that Simeon also was a native of North America. Or did I say North, North Africa? Some think that Simeon may be the same as Simeon of Cyrene who carried the Lord's cross and that Lucius is the same Lucius that Paul would extend greetings to in Romans 16. 
Both Simeon and Lucius were probably among, said one commentator, probably among those refugees who, having fled Jerusalem because of persecution following the death of Stephen, came as far as Antioch and were originally from Cyprus and Cyrene. Next, Luke records Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Manan is believed, uh, it is believed that he was a foster brother brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. He would have been an influential person of royal descent in the church. And then last, Luke mentions Saul, who was brought to Antioch to help teach and to ground the saints there. And as one untimely born, Saul himself is listed last in this list. A couple of observations for us as we consider these things. First, they are all men. Again, this is not to disparage the gifts or the roles of women in the church. Again, another issue that I feel that we better get a grip on, we better get a handle on, because we are allowing women to stand in the pulpits and to start leading the men in its its subversion of how the Lord has structured his world to work. It is not a disparaging thing to speak about women. I could go on all night and sing the virtues of women. And I would do it, and I would gladly do it. The scriptures are full of godly women. And I was raised by a godly woman who taught me to love the Lord Jesus. No one will ever tell me that women aren't important to the church. I wouldn't be here if it weren't for a godly woman uh, promoting the church, promoting the Lord Jesus, and keeping my eyes focused upon him. So, however, that being said, The Lord makes it very plain in his word. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Uh, This is uh, the Lord Jesus chose while he had many disciples and there were women who were disciples. The formal circle of the 12 were all men. The first class of deacons were all men. So they are men. Well, that's one observation. Another observation is that they are not all the same kind of men. Again, look at the different backgrounds of these men that the Lord gave gifts to the church. Notice their color is mentioned. Notice that their status is mentioned. I mean, a guy like Manan, seriously, you sit down at a fellowship meal with him and say, what's it like growing up in the household of Herod? What was that like? And he had had clout and influence, and yet we find him here, uh, he's a servant of the Lord. Remember again in Colossians 3.11 this morning, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. A third observation, notice that the Lord saves his own. And I want to come back to Manan at this point. He is raised amidst royalty in a household that is antithetical to Christ. It was that family that had John the Baptist beheaded. What, what kind of influence must that have had upon this young man? Um, he grows up in this whole poisonous atmosphere, and yet he comes to faith in Christ. Is there, it, this ought to fill us with hope that the Lord's arm is not short, and even in a poisonous culture, in a poisonous environment where people are hating Christ and shutting up his prophets, the Lord's arm is not short, and he saves his people. Wonderful testimony. And here, if you uh, turn with me over to Matthew chapter 10, 
we read this in verses 34 through 39, a passage that I continue to come back to, apparently. Um, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. This is Manan. That was Moses who, who jettisoned the treasures of Egypt and considered greater value to be persecuted for Christ. They find a treasure and they say, I'd rather have Jesus than all this other stuff. It's a sweet and wonderful thing. And you, you see, th- these, are the, these are the men that the Lord has raised up and, and that Luke identifies. And they've got these gifts of, of prophecy and, and of teaching. So he gives gifts. Notice this. He, he has given birth to this church in Antioch. And he gives gifts to these men who are in Antioch. And the saints, as we approach verse 2, the saints are using these gifts in the church, and the Spirit of God himself is directing the church. You see, this is the work of the Spirit. Missions is the work of the Spirit of God working in the lives of his people um, as he uses the gifts he gives and advances his kingdom. It's about the work of the Spirit of God. So we read, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now notice what they're doing. They are busy ministering to the Lord and fasting. It's a normal day. This is the impression we get as we read this. An ordinary day in the life of the church. What are they doing? They are ministering to the Lord and fasting. Uh, The word in Greek is a word where we get our word liturgy. It's a public work or work done on behalf of the people. The word formerly described the service of the priests at the temple of Jerusalem, but here Luke for the first time applies the word to Christian practice. And while it includes the practice of prayer, it doesn't only mean prayer. According to one commentary, he says, according to its derivation, it means any public service or official function. Its true sense is the general one expressed in the translation of ministering, engaged in the discharge of their official function with particular reference to public worship and with the special addition, in this case, of fasting. What do we have going on in the church in Antioch? Everyone's doing what they're supposed to be doing. People are using their gifts. Men and women in the church, believers, gifted by the Lord, by his spirit, loving one another, blessing one another as unto the Lord. Paul says um, in Ephesians 4, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Do you know what happens when a church functions like it should? It bears fruit. What happens in a marriage when a husband and wife are getting along, and and they're loving each other. They have babies. This is the way it works. There's blessing. There's blessing on these relationships. And, And in the church, when we're doing what we should be doing, 
When we're busy serving and loving and caring for one another, applying our gifts to the benefit of the body, things begin to happen. Fruit is born out in the body of Christ. So the preachers are preaching, the teachers are teaching, the givers are giving, discernment is occurring, mercy and service and leadership. The church is behaving as the church ought to behave, serving the Lord in worship and prayer and in fasting. Fasting not as a stated periodical observance, but as a special aid to prayer. There was this earnestness in the people, a voluntary foregoing of food to especially seek the Lord in his direction in prayer. Is this not an example for us of how we need to go forward as a congregation? It, it is. This is an example to us of how we ought to behave. And, and you know, we, we could put up a, a big map and I could get a marker board and we could stand here and I can draw on it and say, now let's just dream a while. Let's just imagine what we can be. And, and we start going down that path. And it's a path without seeking first the Lord. And notice what they are doing. They are praying and they're fasting, which is an earnest way, if, uh, uh, an earnest way in which we seek the Lord in prayer. We're saying, I, I want, I would rather, Lord, hear from you than eat my lunch or my dinner or eat lunches and dinners for however long you do it. But you're seeking the Lord earnestly. You're foregoing what's earthly in order to per, pursue uh, what is of heavenly origin. So they're using these gifts, worshiping and praying and earnestly seeking the Lord. And while they are doing these things, ministering to the Lord and fasting, we are told, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Again, the Spirit said, he's given these gifts, the church is serving, and the Spirit now is directing, he's speaking to them. And honestly, friends, I have read on this, and it is a mysterious thing to me. When I come to a phrase like the Spirit said, I always want to know, how did he say it? Did they hear it audibly? Was it a general impression? Was it given to one man? Was it given to many men? Was it given to many people in the church? How did the Spirit speak to them? But the Holy Spirit spoke to them. And this is what the scripture says. Um, I, I think, you know, if you turn over to Acts 15, there's a wonderful phrase as they're writing and relaying direction from the church. They write, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So the Spirit clearly is speaking to the church. He's making his will known to the church. What it looks like, I'm not entirely sure what to say. I know this. I know that when he speaks to them, when he communicates with his people and guides them, he will never contradict his very word. So the Spirit of God will never tell us to go huddle in some corner and neglect the nations around us. He will never do that because that's not what he says in his word. He will never give us more revelation. He's given us his word. But might he impress a bunch of people to say, think we need to go this way based on the principles of scripture and and as we consider providence it seems good to us you, you know when anyone agrees in a church <laughs> when anyone agrees in a church that's certainly something significant to to right 
you got three Presbyterians in a room and you got 16 opinions. I don't know how that happens, but it's what happens. So he will never contradict his word and he makes and knows how to make, furthermore, what is clear to his people, what he wants them to know. But what is significant is what they're doing. They're busy using their gifts and they're praying and they're fasting, seeking the Lord. That's got to be certainly at the very least an example for us much more plainly stated in other passages of scripture where it's not just uh, giving us an example of what's going on, but where we're actually told what we ought to be doing. Prayer is terribly significant in the church as we speak to the Lord and as we wait to hear from him. What does he command? He says, set apart to me, for me, Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. To set apart is to designate And it implies separation from the rest and from the ordinary work in which they had all been engaged to another special and extraordinary business. Here the Holy Spirit has chosen these two servants, Barnabas and Saul, these men to be used to carry the gospel now in a formal way forward to the Gentiles. Do you remember what the Lord said to Ananias in Acts 9 concerning Saul? He said, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. We heard about it this morning in Philippians. What was he doing? Chained between Praetorian guards, and he's busy talking to this one, and he's busy talking to this one, and they're going home, and they're infiltrating Caesar's household with the gospel. And he's in prison. He chose these two. Why? It might have been one or two of the others, and yet it wasn't. Again, this is all terribly mysterious. Why the Lord does and and treats one man one way and treats another. With Peter, you know, James, James gets run through with a sword or gets his head lopped off, and Peter gets set free. Why? I don't know. It's the providence of God. It's his plan and his will. And of these five men who are listed here, the Lord chooses Barnabas and he chooses Saul. They're called of God. Again, the Lord has given gifts to these men and he sends them where and when he wants to. He does not call them all to go. Clearly, if we all went to the mission field, there would be no one staying home to to teach and to ground people in the things of the Lord. But if we all stayed home, the gospel would never be advanced to the nations, which was always the Lord's plan to bring in the fullness of the nations. And so you can't stay home, all of us, all the time. People have to go. It's the church um, that has this responsibility given to it. Barnabas and Paul, or Saul, have been set apart now for the gospel of Christ among the Gentiles, It was not a good idea by the elders or well-meaning people in the church, but it is coming to them from the Holy Spirit of God, who has given direction to give to his people while they were busy serving him. And finally, what we see in verse 3 is what the church ought always to do, and it is this. When the Lord makes his will clear, you better listen. Verse 3, listen to this. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, They sent them away. When the Lord makes something plain to his people, we must do it. And they did. Here then, after they had finished fasting or praying, or having fasted and prayed again, 
They now laid their hands on them. They ordained them, not now to the gospel ministry of which uh, both were already involved, but from the ordinary service in the, in the church to an extraordinary service, that of taking the gospel to people who had not heard of it before. And what did they do? They sent them away. They were set apart. They are not going all to churches that are already established. If you listen here to Romans 15, we read this very thing uh, from the pen of the apostle. He says in verse 15, chapter 15, verse 15 through 21, we read this. But I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ, and thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they have not, and they who have not heard shall understand. This is what Barnabas and Saul are set apart to do to go and take the gospel of the Lord Jesus to urge men with the weight of God's authority to repent, to believe the gospel, and then to ground them in the truth of the scriptures, just as Jesus instructed his disciples in Matthew 28. No doubt the church would have felt their loss very much. A very sad day for those in Antioch, I would imagine, to lose a man like Barnabas, this warm and very encouraging man, and to lose a man like Saul, who together were used of the Lord to establish and ground the saints in Antioch in the truth. But we do realize, I, I hope, that gifts were never meant to be held close to the chest. The church is the Lord's church. It's not my church, and it's not your church. It's the church of the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus directs his church by his spirit. And until the Lord makes very plain to us what we are to do next, we are to be busy doing what we know we're supposed to do, and that's using our gifts and applying them to the blessing and edification of the people of God. John Piper said this, and I can't remember if it was the name of a book or if it was just a phrase he used, but he said, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Because there are people who sit in darkness, um, the job of the church is to make Jesus Christ known. How we do it, we wait upon the Lord to direct us and make that plain. We are always meant, however, to be outward focused and not to be huddling here away from the world. We look for the lost, and we look to make disciples of them, of our Savior. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, again for this evening, and thank you for these verses. We thank you for the instruction that we get from them and glean the truth we glean from them as we see how you have worked with your church in the past. Lord, forgive us for leaning on our own understanding and forgive us, Father, when we sit down with uh, schematics and blueprints and 
great ideas, but we have not first sought you. We ask, Father, that you would bless the work of our hands in using the gifts you've given us, and we pray that we would be a people who diligently seek you in prayer, earnestly seeking you in prayer and even fasting. We pray that you would bless us with the gifts you would have us have. We pray that these gifts would be fanned into a flame, and we pray, Lord, that you would open doors for your gospel throughout this region, that we would be faithful servants likewise. And we do humbly ask these things now for your grace and your guidance to us. In Jesus' name, amen.